0: congregation, we find ourselves at the point where Israel is in the desert, not in the land of promise, which they could have easily been. Indeed, they had come so very close as to be more or less a stone's throw from that place, which The Lord had sworn to their fathers should be theirs, and God, through a a mighty and a stretched-out arm, brought his people out of the bondage of Egypt and brought them to Sinai, where he, as it were, put an awl in their ear as they bound themselves in grace to him to serve him and to obey his law, And yet when he brought them to the very boundaries, the frontier of this holy, promised land, they refused it. They would not listen to the two witnesses. And it's always a minority, isn't it? The truth has so few friends. The true gospel oftentimes is is so very marginalized even among the people of God. And so the Lord turned them right around because they despised the gospel that was preached to them. And so you, dear friends, you are so very close. The kingdom is near to you, but as you know, it is is not an automatic thing. You must have faith Not your father's faith or your mother's faith, boys and girls. It's got to be your faith. And no, you can't can't create it within your own heart, but that's not an excuse for you now. When the word comes to you, a word that is free and full of promise of grace to receive it without the works of the law. Well, in particular, before the chapter which we are to consider this morning and this evening with God's help, the immediate context is after Korah's rebellion. You remember that what happened there is that a certain number of Levites and non-Levites they weren't so very happy with management. Let's put it that way. And they complained and grumbled. And the sons of Korah in particular weren't happy that although they had been made a priestly tribe, yet they wanted more. And Aaron, he is the the high priest, and and so there is this discontentment, and you have various factions coming together, and. And then there is the challenge. You take upon you too much, Moses and Aaron. We are all holy. It's that that spirit of carnal democracy. We the people. The 51% are absolute. That's a fearful thing, isn't it? And that's not to say that God hasn't honored the common man and woman or the common people of God. But we have all received the taint of original sin, and we should beware of the 51%. Well, when all is said and done, the ground has opened up, it is consumed Korah and all that belong to him, a fire goes out and destroys. Uh, 250 princes who passed through. They had the, the, the brazen gall to go through with this test, preparing their censers to, to demonstrate that they were indeed the Lord's chosen. Well, they all die, and those censers are beaten into covers to be placed over the altar to remind, a sober reminder, don't come to God in a way that he has not appointed. And the Lord will choose that man whom he will bring into his presence. And if you want to come to God, you've got to attach yourself to that man. And there's the gospel again. Indeed, friends, we can't walk around in the Old Testament even a few paces before tripping over, may I say it reverently, the gospel. It's everywhere. Well, as we consider this next chapter, this next development, Aaron's rod blossoming, we have the Lord gives yet another sign, another sign by another test to confirm his chosen priest the man whom he has chosen to bring the people of God to him. This sign, this blossoming of Aaron's rod will silence the rebels and stand through the generations as an enduring witness to keep them and hedge them in from from themselves. From sin, from death, and to to hedge them unto life. Let us consider uh, this token against the rebels, as we have it in the language of the King James Version. Aaron's rod, a token for the rebels, we'll consider this passage in two parts. And first, let us consider uh, this morning four points. We have a parallel test in verses 1 to 7. Second, in verse 8, a parallel proof. Third, the response of the people, carnal despair. And fourth, an abiding token, solemn yet sweet. So, first, a parallel test. We say parallel because the Lord has already Lowered himself with the congregation that was clamoring and contending and fighting in their unbelief and in their their swollen pride and self importance. We are all holy. The Lord said, All right, we'll have a test. Similar in some respects, perhaps later on, to the test at Mount Carmel. Where all the the heathen uh, prophets are brought together to do what they thought that they needed to do to manipulate the, the, the heavenly powers, Baal, to give rain. Well, so also here, the Lord says, all right, Korah and your company... You think you're holy. You think I've favored you and I've chosen you. Well then, you make your censers, you who think you are such great priests. And you put in the incense, and you come and Aaron will put in his incense, in his censer. And tomorrow you will see the one whom the Lord has chosen. Well, they saw... And there was a lot of death. Horrifying. Panic. Can you just imagine seeing in front of your own eyes an entire household being swallowed up by the earth? Everyone's running. The the very text indicates so. It it would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? No one wants to be caught up in this conflagration, isn't it? Isn't this always the way? Sinners are so willing to sign up for the cause against God and against truth until God comes to town. But the very next day, what do we read? You have killed the people of the Lord. Are you serious? Then a plague begins, and the very one whom they rejected, Aaron, puts incense in his censer, and he runs as bodies are dropping on every side, and he is making atonement for his enemies. The Lord has has bowed down and has submitted himself to a test to silence the doubters, the rebels. And now he does it again. Because he knows the heart. You see, unbelief is so deep and so stubborn. You would think it'd be enough. You know, if I saw an entire household being devoured by the earth, with all the screams and the shrieks and the mothers holding their little babies, clutching them, trying to protect them, and yet it is all in vain, I would certainly not follow on. In unbelief, I would submit to the Lord. Really? Really you would? Unbelief has a very, very deep and stubborn root. And so, the Lord... He will, as it were, lay it to rest. Now, of course, we know that even this miracle cannot regenerate the heart. But the Lord will silence those who contend. And so again, the Lord subjects himself, and he subjects his man to another test, another overnight. Moses is told, take 12 rods, one rod, one staff from each of the houses, write in their presence, let them all see, write the name of the tribe on each of the rods, and on the rod for the house of Levi, write Aaron's name. These are dead pieces of driftwood. They have not had any organic connection to to the earth for, for some time. And everyone sees it, everyone understands. And then God says that you will place these in the tabernacle of the congregation where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom. Notice that language again. The man whom I choose. Blessed is the man whom you choose and you make approach unto thee. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runs, nor, but of God that shows mercy. And more than that, as we shall see, it is a sign that the only one who can be the mediator between sinners and a holy God is one whom God appoints and not man. And it shall come to pass, the Lord calls it, and boys and girls, this isn't Babe Ruth pointing his bat to the bleachers. The Lord knows how to humble such proud men. But the Lord, who calls the end from the beginning, says exactly what is going to happen. It shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. Now again, we don't have at least explicitly in the text a repeat of their murmuring, but there's been enough of a precedent, hasn't there been? And God knows their hearts, and he is going to stamp the last bits of at least the reasons for doubt. Although God should never have to do this, should he? does the Lord really need to prove himself? And what is man that he should insist that somehow God, the great authority and and maker of all things and the one in whom we live and move and have our being... We breathe in the oxygen that he has created as as an envelope around our world. Your heart beats again and again and again because of his sovereign good pleasure. And the instant that he wants it to stop, there is nothing you can do. Or any medical professional. And he gives a thousand, a thousand and thousand. Untold numbers of proofs, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then within redemptive history, we, we just have miracle upon miracle that were witnessed. Does God really need to prove himself to you? Is it not demeaning that he should be put to to the test by these rebels? And yet he does. That's one of the wonderful things about God is his patience. His patience with you. His patience with your waywardness, with your pride, with your murmuring. You're complaining. Or maybe you don't constantly say it in so many words that you're, you're, the axe that you have to grind is against God ultimately, but you're com- complaining and murmuring uh, stinks of it. And you put God to the test. You provoke God. That's what we read of in Psalm 95, don't we? In the desert, for 40 years, they provoked me. And yet how patient and good. Do not tire the Lord. Do not weary him any longer with your unbelief. It is a burden to him. All your excuses—they are—they are a burden to him. I am the God who has brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. And yet you constantly put me to the test. Don't test the Lord. Don't step out. Don't step out in disobedience and assume the Lord will keep you. Second, we have a parallel proof, a parallel test to the one that The Lord humbled himself to to have himself and his servant pass through, but God will vindicate himself, and that's exactly what he does. And it came to pass, verse 8, that on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded, and not just that, but brought forth buds and blossoms and yielded almonds it's a little extra and it's really not so little is it how long do you those of you who have green thumbs how long do you wait for the little seed to bring forth its buds and its blossoms and its fruit James says, the the husbandman, the farmer, hath great patience, waiting for the fruit. He hath long patience for it as he waits for the early and the latter rain. That's the way it is so oftentimes. And yet the Lord does something absolutely miraculous and instantaneously fast-forwards the whole process of life. And everyone saw it. These things were not done in a corner. The whole congregation, they were there. When Moses had all those rods, the names were written. There's no funny business going on here. They all saw those rods go into the holy place. And one comes out the next day. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel, and they looked and took every man his rod. Boys and girls, when you read the Bible stories, they're not just stories, they're histories, they're accounts. The entire congregation was called as witness. These people witnessed these things. Just as they witnessed the grapes of Eshcol, they saw them with their eyes. Now they also saw the counter evidence, the giants. They reached up so very high and we felt like grasshoppers before their eyes and and their cities, their walled cities, the walls reached up unto heaven. Interesting how exaggeration so easily creeps into our language by unbelief. How do you exaggerate your troubles? Your troubles that seem to be bigger than God? Bigger than his word? They looked and took every man his rod. The very flesh of the hand clasped the rod, the same one. And yet Zabulon and Issachar And Judah, even Judah, it was just a dead piece of driftwood as it had been the day before, but not the rod whom the Lord chose. Friends, the Lord hastens his word to perform it. Striking how we we have that language that comes to us from Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Now there's a play on words that we don't see in the English. The almond being closely related to the word for hasten. Consider how many miracles the Lord has wrought that are essentially the hastening of goodness. The water is turned into wine, but technically, technically, it's turned into grape juice and instantaneously fermented. Isn't that striking? Now sometimes God's Word seems to take such a long time. It seems sometimes just ponderous. That's that's how the people of God felt in Egypt. How long, O Lord? And and the Lord tests and puts you, children of God, oftentimes through an ordeal that, that just drags out. But the Lord will always fulfill his word And when he fulfills it, there is nothing that can stop it. And to the eye of faith, especially when we see the fulfillment, we will understand with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And so however we may not be able to understand that when Jesus says, behold, I come quickly, when he finally comes in the clouds... We will know it's true. He did not drag his feet in the nick of time. And God's timing is perfect. Now, he may wait till the very, very, very end, but if he does that, he does it for good reasons. And then the heavens open. The windows of the heavens open and he rains down his blessings. Struggling Christian, hold on. The Lord hastens his word. He hastens his word to perform it. Believe it. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou should see the glory of God. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, if you don't believe, then that stone, that stone which has been made the chief and the head cornerstone, it will ground you to dust. Like that man who said, how is it possible, Elisha, that that here in Samaria where where we're on starvation rations, that the very next day we're going to have such an abundance, you will see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it with your mouth. Now, we didn't see this. I didn't see it. You didn't see it. But we believe it as God did this and manifested it to witnesses. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is that God has stepped into time, into our wicked and wretched and broken world, our world full of murmuring and pride and and trying the patience of God. The Lord hastens His word to perform it. And before we hasten on, let's just also observe that God honors His own law. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, God's above the law, but the law reflects His character his character of fairness, of decency, of truthfulness, and he calls upon us so to respect truth as not to receive an accusation without two or three witnesses. Now, that's not the main point of this passage, but I think it's worth at least stopping for just a moment and observing it. God gives his people the witness of Korah's rebellion and the witness of Aaron's rod to silence these people. So if God respects truth, he who is truth itself, let us honor the principle, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, and don't Allow accusations to come into your heart and your mind unless it is established. Now we hasten to our third point and as we are going to treat this with some greater length tonight, not exclusively, but to some degree we won't uh, elaborate too much, but we have the response of the people, which maybe in one sense isn't as bad as it could have been. They didn't renew their 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 rebellion against Moses, but but look how they how they respond. Verse 12, And the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die, shall we be consumed with dying. Now, from one point of view, you can understand this. Just the day before, There was not only the the ground opening up, devouring this whole uh, uh, household of of rebels, 250 princes being consumed by fire, leaving their censers behind them. And then the next day, you killed the people of God. And then a plague enters in and kills more than 14,000 people. So you can kind of understand, but it's not the right response. And not only that, but let's remember that God entered into this new test to prove himself yet again, causing Moses to have that rod that that budded for his brother Aaron, And not only budded, but blossomed, and not only blossomed, but brought forth almonds. But the Lord, who has shown this grace unto the people of Israel, does not receive their faith. And he doesn't really receive their repentance. These are Esau's tears. Woe is us. All of us were dying. Are we just going to die even more? How long are we going to stop dying? Well, the question might better be, when will you start believing? When will you stop murmuring and complaining? I am the God of life. I am not willing that you should die. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? It's unreasonable. I don't want you to die, and yet you are bent on dying. This is as the man in Pilgrim's Progress, in the cage. The cage is open. It's unlocked. He can come out, but he just stays there in bondage. Now, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, as we shall see, there is a certain despair that is pleasing to God when we despair of our sins and our own hopes to save ourselves, but carnal despair is ugly and twisted. It's ultimately selfish and self-destructive. And it does not honor the word of God and his promise. And it's not even realistic. Because yes, all those things had happened. But the Lord has given a sign of peace. Which leads us forth and last to our final point, an abiding token, solemn yet sweet. The Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels, and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. Now that's a solemn sign that would remain with them. And I hope you know your Bibles well enough, children, to know where it was placed, in the Ark of the Covenant, right next to the two stone tablets of the law and the jar of manna. Very solemn sign. The context of that for anyone who knew their Bible history would know how many people died just prior to that rod miraculously budding and blossoming and bringing forth the almonds. And this is to be kept for a token against the rebels. (laughs) And that's what they were. That they not continue to disbelieve and murmur, but it's also a sweet token that they die not, that they die not. This is your life. You don't have it. You only have sin and death. If the if the history of God's people under the old covenant shows us anything it reinforces what Paul the apostle called the law of sin and death. Without a redeemer there's no escaping it. And there's no hope. There's only a fearful expectation of wrath. And what was experienced by Korah is even just the entryway into what we fully understand with the clear light of the New Testament is not merely six feet under, but the death that never dies. As these were taken alive down into the pit, the Bible is telling us that there is a a grave in the grave, It is outer darkness. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is the constant gnawing of the conscience into eternity. It's a fearful thing. That's what Jesus tells us about. And Jesus, who is Jehovah in the flesh, doesn't tell us about hell simply to scare us. He tells us because Jehovah in the flesh cares for humanity and does not want them to die. Why will you die? You who are, as it were, addicted to death. Why are you addicted to death? Because you are addicted to sin. Maybe not all kinds of sins. Maybe not like the guy over there who you think is so unworthy. Oh, but you have your own stinking sins that are hell worthy. But to this, the Lord lifts up to the ancient people, and He lifts up to you the sign not of death, but of life. Indeed, of of resurrection life. Fairbairn writes, that this sign was not given to the detriment and death of the congregation, but rather for their life and fruitfulness to God. It's as the dove after the, the great flood and the horror in the days of Noah comes with, a, with an olive branch in its mouth its a sign of life, a life that is provided by God in his Son. And we close with making just a beginning at what we will continue to unfold with the Lord's help tonight, and that this is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is Aaron's rod that blossomed in its essence in its inner meaning in its symbolism He was as a a, a root out of a dry ground He had no form nor comeliness He was weak There was nothing about him that drew us to him. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It is as a dry branch. And all the more when he is lifted up on that wood, is there a sign of such wretchedness, weakness indeed of of sin and of death? Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree But there, to the eye of faith, we have buds and blossoms and almonds. Christ is, he is the anointed one. He is the one whom Aaron represents, God's chosen man. Don't fight him. Surrender to him. And blessed be his name that christ has been revealed and made manifest as luke says with many infallible proofs proof upon proof evidence upon evidence thomas put your fingers in the prince the very holes made by real Roman nails. He died. You know, the Muslims, they don't believe. They don't believe that Jesus as a prophet could die. That would be beneath him. But the Romans saw when that spear was pushed through his ribcage, and outflowed blood and water, and they did not break his legs. Why, children? You know why. Because he had already died. There was no doubt that he was very much dead. And three days later, there was no doubt, at least increasingly no doubt, that he was very much alive. I love that. Can we even call it a kind of a creed in 1 Corinthians 15? That he was, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. And that he was seen. friends, the Lord has lowered himself to you, his enemies, to prove himself. And he has proven himself. The buds and the blossoms and the almonds are almost beyond counting when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, take him. And surrender to Him. It is not your death. Oh, you will say that, but then I have to give up my sins. You want to, you don't want to give up your sins. Do you want to die? Will you not rather live? See Him. Him who is lifted up. Him the one who answers to Aaron's rod blossoming. Believe and bow. Amen.